Praise the Lord. It's wonderful. I read an article this week about emojis. And I know most of you are thinking, have we actually arrived at that point in our world where they do research and write articles about emojis? And for those of you who are not in the loop and haven't thought that yet, you're just like, what is he talking about? Emoji, of course, is that little image or icon that you send from text, uh, send via text uh, between phones or maybe on a social media platform, and uh, it communicates emotion in addition to or maybe instead of words. And I know a lot of you use emojis uh, uh, because I receive messages from you. You know, instead of saying okay, you shoot the thumbs up to me, or. Uh, if you think that I looked ridiculous, you send that tears of joy emoji uh, just to send the message. Or if you really agree or you think I look great, you put that emoji with the smiling, the hearts in the eyes or whatever. Or if you really want to emphasize what you've got to say to your pastor, you put clapping hands behind every word. I just want to make sure you get it. Well, the, uh, the article asks the question, is an emoji a word or a gesture? Well, we know people communicate with more than just words. In fact, most of our communication is not the words that I say, but it's how I say it. My body orientation, the way that I smile when I say it, or the inflection in my voice, or the gestures we use. And so this is helpful because text messaging and email sometimes are hard to quite to understand what they're trying to say. So the emoji provides the emotion. So maybe I know what you mean when you say it. Are you sarcastic or not when you send the message? And the bottom line is this, we find incredible ways, very creative ways to communicate clearly and effectively with one another. Well, I think that you might be interested to know that God also uses various ways to communicate to the world. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. And maybe you've experienced that as well, because God does use circumstances to speak. But today, we're going to look at the psalm that declares our God is a God who speaks. And we ventured into the psalms for the summer. Scholars um, generally agree that most, some say all, of the psalms um, were composed for public performance in the temple worship of ancient Israel. Well, today's psalm is specifically written as the header that is written for the uh, the director of the choir, and it's written by King David. So this is one of those songs that's useful for worship. So join me in Psalm 19. I'm going to read the entire psalm to you. That's verses 1 through 14. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom, coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, 
They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What we have in this glorious psalm is an all-filled description of the cosmic self-revelation of God through his creative acts and his gracious instructions. Psalm demonstrates, Psalm 19 demonstrates that our God is not silent. He is a God who speaks. So how does God speak? Well, Psalm 19 makes clear that God speaks in the skies, in the scriptures, and in our soul. So let's look first at verses 1 through 6 when we see that our God speaks in the skies. Notice that Psalm 19 does not open as a call to worship. Psalm 8 is a psalm of David that declares the glorious acts of God and it opens this way. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 29 is like it, a psalm of David declaring the powerful acts of the Lord and it says, Ascribe to the Lord. O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Both of these psalms are called, be open with calls to worship, inviting God's people to come before him in praise, but not Psalm 19. We find in Psalm 19 that it does not open with an invitation for God's people to lift up his name. Instead, we have this declaration of praise that is emanating from something other than people. Well, where is it coming from? Psalm opens, it says, the heavens are telling, and their expanse is declaring. David is talking about the firmament, talking about the skies, the heavens. Inanimate creation has been given a voice and is singing out praise. So there's this continual cry of praise coming from God's creative display in the skies. And what are they shouting about? Well, verse 1 says, the heavens are, t are telling of the glory of God. What else would creation sing about than the Creator? So the psalmist says they are speaking of the glory of God. <clears throat> this word glory is translated from the Hebrew word kabod, which refers, th this word refers to either an attribute that God possesses, like the glory of God seen in his powerful displays, or it can also refer to his actual presence. And whenever the writers of scripture are describing God's actual presence, they run out of words. They don't quite know how to say it. It's almost like they need emojis. Now I'm not advocating for that, okay? But I'm saying it, that's what they're looking for. They want you to know how to feel when you see this. And so they describe the glory of God in his presence in ways like this. There's this brilliant light or a consuming fire. Something that both awes and threatens us as we read it. But here, nature reflects or makes visible the overwhelming essence of God, His glory in the skies. And then the psalmist says, the firmament is declaring the work of His hands. 
So very plainly here, God is declared to be the creator of the skies and of all of creation here in this first verse. Warren Wearsby says, modern science would have us study natural laws and leave God out. But the psalmist looked at the marvels of heaven and earth and saw God. We live in a real interesting time where naturalists have, uh, naturalism has basically pushed from Western thought this idea that the maker of heaven and earth is God. It's been replaced, this idea that there is a creator who intentionally designed the world we see and intentionally formed out of the dust of the earth human life. That's been pushed out of the way and the thought that's been embraced is that life on earth arose from natural substances by natural selection for natural ends. No God, no creator, just random occurrences that caused all that we see and all that exists. And naturalism claims to be the best and most scientific way to seek truth. But I would contend that it fails. It is internally inconsistent as a philosophy. It's empirically inadequate. And it lacks satisfactory explanatory power. Because the world is in fact designed for life. And life is designed for the world. And you think, well, who's behind it? The psalmist says, it's God, and I agree with him. And the works of his hands, he says, pour forth speech from day to day and night to night. What David is saying is that, is that there's this song that's been going on from the first day of creation that continues until this point that speaks of its maker, that declares the glory of God and the works of his hands. Then verse 3 states the obvious that's worth us looking at. It says, there is no speech, nor are there words. So there's not an audible voice declaring the glory of God. There's not that speaking of the works of God. It's just pictures, like emojis maybe, that cannot be shut up, that are declaring about who God is and what he has done. And since there's no words, there doesn't need to be a translator. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. We can all look and say, wow. Now, the psalmist says, wow, look at what God has done. Others fill in the blanks in different ways. But who's getting this message? Verse 4 says, their line has gone out through all the earth to the end of the world. So the message goes out to every corner of creation because everybody can see it. So remember at the time that David is writing this, there is uh, essentially just one people who has the oracles of God, the word of God. There's just one city and one nation where the temple is that you can go to worship God. But the psalmist says there's no place in all of the, uh, the world where the message of God's glory and the work of his hands is not being communicated on any given day. Paul actually picks up this idea when he writes to the church at Rome. He's talking about the Gentiles, and he's saying even though they don't have the law, they're without excuse because they have God's creation. He says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Creation ensures... That all people in all places of the world are without excuse when it comes to knowing 
God. But the scriptures does, need to, does say that the gospel needs to be preached there. So because God is speaking to all people through all the works of his hands, we have here in this last part of verse 4 through verse 6, David focuses on one particular part of creation. He's speaking of the sun. He says, he, and he uses kind of a mixed metaphor here. Might not be great for Ryan, but it works perfectly here. Where he says, there's this tent for the sun, where it's covering the sun. And then he says, like a bridegroom, it exits out of the chamber. And like a strong man, it runs its course, the circuit of all of the heavens. The sun is begging us to look up. Lift your eyes and take notice of the Lord. Take notice of the fact that there's something bigger. There's something more marvelous than the things that kind of distract us here in front of our face in any given moment. There's something more powerful than the people who think they're in charge of the affairs of man in this world. There's something more influential than those who think they have the attention of everybody on earth. There has to be something else behind these heavenly bodies that keep this whole world rotating and everything in place. The sun communicates there's a creator and there's a sustainer and there's a life giver and there's a governor over all of creation. And so he concludes verse 6 by pointing out that nothing hides from the heat of the sun. And it implies that nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. Nature preaches to every human of the majesty and the glory of God and the accountability that we have to our Creator. Have you ever had that experience where you've just looked at the sky and you've just said out loud, wow. You know, maybe it's uh, one of those beautiful sunsets in the mountains or a sunrise over the East Coast or those huge skies that are over Texas where you look up and you say, a picture wouldn't even do this justice. You couldn't even paint it. It's so incredible. And you're just awestruck by God's display in the skies. The first time I went to Haiti, I was out in one of the most remote parts of this very remote country. And uh, it was, we stayed one evening out there. Spent the night in a school building, which was the only structure, not a mud hut, in this village. And at night, once everybody had gone back to their um, homes, we went outside and I remember looking up and my jaw dropped. I had never seen such a bright night sky. I could see the Milky Way with my naked eye. I remember what came to mind. God, you are so big. And I was reminded of that verse in Genesis where it says that God took um, Abraham outside and he says, look up. Count them, because you're going to outnumber this whenever I give you a people. And I thought, man, God is big, and God's plans for me are big. Warner Wearsby wrote, nature preaches a thousand sermons a day to the human heart. Well, what does nature preach? I think it preaches that God is real. I think nature preaches that God is great and God is good. It preaches he's eternal that he's gracious, that he's a sustainer of life. It preaches of his creative power, of his relentless goodness. I think it also preaches of his divine judgment. I think nature preaches of his faithfulness and his protective care. I also think it preaches a message to us of the instability of trusting in only what we see. As a believer, your trust in God should be reinforced by the unspoken words of creation. I know some of you just get nervous by that and you think, but 
people say that there's, you know, they, they deny a creator, an intelligent designer. But in every situation that's ever been known to man, life has been the only thing that's given us life. Life has never come from nothing. And so it's reasonable for you to look at this and say, somebody had to do this. And it's God, the living God who creates and sustains life. Secondly, nature should draw our attention away from ourselves. If you're like me, you can just go through life and get so self-absorbed, you think it's all about you. And nature says, oh man, there's so much more. There's something bigger. There's something grander, something brighter, something more glorious than what I'm having to deal with today. And I'm going to set my attention on that. Some of you may walk in here and you've never placed your hope in a God who gives you hope of something bigger, brighter, grander, that's more glorious than what you face. And I would tell you that today, if God's speaking to you about that, would you respond? Just trusting in him for salvation, believing in him. I know you can't see him, but you can see the effects of him. And I can tell you this, he sees you because the scripture says there's nothing hidden from him. He sees you, he knows you, he made you, he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. All it takes is believing in him. God speaks in creation, but we actually hear his voice in his word. So let's look at verses 7 through 11. And it's here that David changes his focus from nature to the law of the Lord. Now this word law of the Lord is the Torah. The law that's given to Moses for God's people. Some categorize Psalm 19 as a Torah psalm because it emphasizes and gives praise to the Torah. Well, there are many reasons to love the law. But can we first state that what a blessing we have it. We have God's words. How gracious is he to give us this so we're not scrambling or trying to discover or trying to find out. He's given it to us. We have the revelation of God right here in this book. Nature speaks of God. This book gives us God's words. For the Jewish audience, the Torah would include the law. It also came to include the Talmud, which is the oral traditions about the law. For the Christian, we have the scriptures, and we know that this right here is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And we can trust it. We can build our lives on it. So the psalmist then goes on to describe what the law of the Lord is. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. That means there's no error in it with regards to spiritual matters. No error contained within it. He says the testimony of the Lord is sure. That means it does not change. It's stable. You can trust in it. It does not shift. It does not have to adapt. It doesn't develop. It's sure and settled. He says the precepts of the Lord are right. That means there's nothing wrong about it. People can say, well, you know, it's written for a different day, a different age, a different set of circumstances. We've evolved since then. But it's right. That means it does not lead us to do wrong. It says it's pure. That means whenever we apply the word of God properly, it will not lead us to sin. Because it's pure, it leads to righteous living. Scripture says in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. In the same way, it leads us, if you live in accordance to it, it leads towards righteous living. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So true and righteous judgments. You know, we just speculate a lot. We conjecture. We just try to figure things out. God knows everything, and he knows it well. So whenever he comes to judge, he gives proper, he gives right and true adjudication at it. It says here that uh, they are more desirable than gold. 
The word of the Lord is a treasure. I like how Psalm 119 verse 72 says. It says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Then it says, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know, I'm one of these people that likes real sugar or real honey. I don't like these artificial, artificial substitutes. Don't put anything like that in my drink or in my, you know, coffee or whatever. I, uh, just, just the real stuff. God's law is not artificial. It's not a substitute. It's pure. It naturally sweetens. You know, if you're living in rebellion, the law of the Lord is bitter. But if you're a walking with the Lord, there is nothing like reading this word and the smile coming on your mouth, on your face, saying, wow, what God has done. Because God's word satisfies my life like nothing else can. Well, what does the Bible do? I kind of broke it down here, and he goes back to, if you go back to verse 7, he says, first of all, it restores the soul. That's translated from the word convert. So the law of the Lord doesn't condemn, it converts. It has the opportunity to restore, to um, refresh, to heal. That's what the law of the Lord does. It makes wise. It brings wisdom here. Psalm 119 says it this way in verses 98 through 100. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. God's word gives us wisdom, is what it says. And then what else does it do? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It gives joy to my heart. There's so many things in this world that steals joy. The scriptures, the truth of God's word brings joy. That's why you should meditate on it. That's why you should sing it. That's why you should recite, recite it, study it, memorize it. Because whenever you hit that moment where you need the joy in the life that this world offers, you find it in God's word. It says here, it enlightens the eyes. It brings light. It casts shadows away when you're so confused or you feel like the way is dark. God brings light to you through his word. Verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Well, think about that just for a second. 3,500 years ago, this has been written down. Somewhere around that. It endures. We have it today. But it's not just about that, that we have a copy of it. It's that it still stands. It endures the test of time. What David penned here is still applicable to our lives. And then he says, it's more desirable than gold, so it enriches us. It's sweeter than honey. It satisfies us. Verse 11 says, moreover by them your servant is warned. It's by scriptures that we know we are, we are led away from temptation. We are warned by what might happen. But the scriptures, the truth of God's word, warns us, prevents us from going down that road. And finally, it says here, they bring great reward. God rewards by the keeping of the commandments. He rewards you, your life. What does he give you? He gives you a clean conscience. He gives you answered prayer. He gives you a pure heart. He gives you joy. He gives you peace. This is not because we keep God's word, a copy of it, but because we apply it, we put it into practice. So the Bible is the personal revelation of God. It graciously introduces us to God and what he desires for us. It is both precious, it's pleasurable, it guides, and it blesses. You live in an age when many inside of the church or who carry the title of Christian doubt the truth of this word. 
They question where the words came from. They wonder whether we've gotten it right. They doubt who might have written them. And they sure don't think that they're necessarily applicable to today's life. I want to exhort you like David to keep a high view of the scriptures. There is more evidence to support the veracity of these words than any other similar book that we have in all of history. It's a truthful book. Just because the world doubts God and doubts his word does not mean you should. Secondly, I would challenge you to recognize that God's word does not simply place restraint around you. I believe that it provides freedom. It gives blessing. It gives reward. Because God's precepts revealed in scripture give us freedom to live life abundantly. So God is a God who speaks in nature. He speaks in the scriptures. Finally, God is a God who speaks in the soul. Verses 12 through 14 um, focuses on the way we respond to the scriptures in our own lives. And so he asks, who can discern his errors? He's talking about who among you can, who can discern their, who knows when they've done something wrong? Who sees their own flaws? I know you can point out everybody else's flaws around you, but you really struggle at your own, right? In fact, maybe we'll have a little time of sharing. You can tell people the problems you have with them, you know, but you got to receive it back. <laughs> who can discern his own flaws? We need the scriptures that acts like a mirror. So when we look in it, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling before. You look in it and you're all of a sudden like, oh man, I have gotten it so wrong. Because the scriptures reveal my errors. And then it also it corrects us in the ways that we're wrong, and it extends to our hidden faults, is what the verse says. So perhaps this means the sins that you don't quite know are sins yet. Or it could mean those things that you're keeping under wraps that nobody else knows about. God can forgive even those things, because nothing is hidden from God. And so it's right here that this lofty praise with which the psalm begins leads to a down-to-earth prayer for forgiveness. So if you're kind of thinking, this is just such flowery words... I want you to look at this prayer and the personal alignment that David seeks for God's, for, with God's will and God's pleasure. And so he says here, acquit me of my hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. And then he says, I'll be blameless. That doesn't mean sinless. That means that God can blot out my transgressions. Because you're correcting me and I'm, I'm living in accordance with your will. And then we have this beautiful conclusion that I think ought to just flow through your mind in any given moment of any given day. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God speaks to us in his cre creation as nature sings his glory and his word, as the law points us to him, the words in our own mouths and within our own souls ought to be about him and his glory as well. This phrase, meditation of the heart, brings to mind this image of the person who plucks strings on a harp. And so the idea is, as you meditate on God's word, or maybe it's this, to ask the question, who's plucking the strings of your heart? Is it the songs of this world, or is it the songs of the Lord? What is it that's influencing you throughout your day? It also, meditation also brings to our mind the idea of digestion, of what we put in our body to power our bodies. And the same thing here, I take your word into my, as I meditate on it, 
it powers my life. So I would urge you to allow the word of God to dwell in you so richly that it motivates you towards godly living. Paul says it this way to the church at Galatians, Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I think the application for the believer in light of these three verses in the psalm is to walk in the Spirit. So are you? Are you walking in the Spirit? What motivates the direction of your life? Whenever you face certain circumstances, how do you process interruptions in your life? How do you deal with temptations that you face? One way is to let the God's Word dwell in you so that you're walking in the Spirit. So our God communicates. He speaks in the skies, in the Scriptures, and in our soul. God has not left us alone. He has not remained silent. He is a God who can be found, a God who can be known, and a God who can be a personal Savior. The psalmist calls the Lord my rock and my redeemer. What does it mean for the Lord to be a redeemer? That means he buys me back. When I willfully sin, he provides me covering for that sin and forgives me if I'm in relationship with him. If you've never done that, would you do that today? Finally, many of you are obsessed with communication. Let me go ahead and tell you. The scripture says that nature pours forth speech every day, day and night. Are you listening? We have the law of the Lord where God communicates to us in a personal way. Are you reading it? And the Holy Spirit speaks to our souls. Are you in tune with walking in the Spirit? What a glorious gift we have in the revelation of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths of your word. You've preserved it for us. And it's so applicable to us. I pray that you would help us now to apply it, even now, asking the questions of what you might have with us, Lord. I pray that you would have your way in our lives and in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God's speaking to your heart. Perhaps it's about salvation. Perhaps it's about joining the church. Maybe it's a next step for you, like baptism. We have an invitation, and the opportunity is for you. You just come forward, and we help you make that step. It might be that you make a decision right where you are, where you say, God, once again, I'm going to recommit to listening, to reading your word, to listening to you as you speak to me. But as God speaks, you respond. So you stand, our choir will sing, you respond.
First of all, I wanted to say that I saw Eric and Martha Alfrey sitting over here. And Eric and Martha, y'all, y'all stand up just so they can see you, okay? So Eric, they're just happy that you're in church. But Eric, Eric served as our children's minister for several years, and they've been in uh, one side of the world. Now they're going to another part of the world to serve the Lord in Christian education, I believe, uh, in South America. So that's, so that's where they're headed. But we're glad to see you all here today. Uh, you be praying for our team that's in Connecticut with Builders for Christ. Uh, they are working on building a sanctuary. Uh, they're kind of serving a role there for a week, so you be praying for them. And then also, this coming weekend, we have a team that's heading out to Salt Lake City. Um, on mission there, There'll be, there's information in the bulletin, but you, I just want, I'm bringing it to your attention so this week you can pray for both of those matters. Uh, coming up in just a few weeks, we have our Vacation Bible School, which is a great opportunity for children in our community, maybe children in your home or neighbors or uh, relatives, and so I um, hope that you'll invite them and you'll have kids here, but also they do have a uh, workers meeting today or a training there at 4 o'clock. But some of you, I gave the challenge last week, that maybe have not stepped up. And you say, you know what? I can give the time for Vacation Bible School. Um, Christopher's going to be down front. He's right over here. And so you come see him. If you say, you know what? I've got some time or I've got the week, whatever. Uh, he'd love to put you to work in serving at Vacation Bible School. Uh, if you have a prayer need today, we do have uh, these gentlemen, these deacons down front with red badges. They would love to pray with you for your specific need. But I'm going to invite you to stand. And then I'm going to pray our benediction. Heavenly Father, what a delight it always is to be with God's people, worshiping you, considering your word, and now responding to it. I pray, Father, as we leave this room, uh, that we would not be the same, that we would serve you in every area where you call us. It's in Christ's name we pray.